0: The information shared as part of this carbon series is general in nature. We're asking questions of Professor Richard Eckhart and he's providing his insights from his expertise. Humans of Agriculture doesn't endorse any of his views as part of this. They're really designed to just be conversation starters and if you want to get more information, please reach out to specialists and experts in the carbon space. Welcome back to Carbon Shortcuts, an introduction to all things carbon in Aussie agriculture. Sam Noon and I are sitting down with Professor Richard Eckard. For the in the know on the go podcast by humans of agriculture this series has been sponsored by ruminati you want to check out more about them head to ruminati.com.au or we'll check out the link in our show notes i'm sitting down on what country and i extend my respects to the traditional custodians on the lands wherever you're taking our podcast this week sam i think what's exciting about this series is we're really starting to see a little bit of conversation coming across both social media People reaching out to us directly we're going to get a couple of those questions answered up the front but what else can listeners expect from episode three
1: there's a lot in here we begin to talk about supply chain targets differing roles between the private and government sectors the different greenhouse gas accounting frameworks how farmers can begin to get involved in the carbon markets and the difference between soil carbon projects and emission reduction strategies and avoidance, and how that ties into what Richard mentions in episode one around the international definition of carbon neutral. So a lot in there.
0: Rich, we've fleshed out the first couple of episodes, and I think what we're we're starting to work our way towards starting to understand a little bit more about what are the opportunities for farmers on farm, but also we still have a few areas of the supply chain we haven't quite covered off. Now, between recording the last episode and this one, we've actually had a few people from the community come in with questions. The first one, which I've got is really interesting and something that I wanted to ask you. But So if pastoral leases are for the first top six inches of soil, who's entitled to the organic carbon credits that are measured from below six inches?
2: Yeah, look, it's not a question that's really been addressed, but From the point of view of carbon sequestration and the legislation, the landowner gets to own the carbon. So I know a number of states allow separation of carbon rights from land rights and from mining rights. So in Victoria, for example, that legislation does exist. So I'd recommend people check their legislation, particularly in the Northern Territory, because pastoral leases, uh, traditional owner rights all get a little bit muddy when it comes to owning what is inherently a property of the soil. So I'd recommend people take a look at that. In terms of the general rules of how it works though, soil carbon sequestration would be the land owner that has the call on that. And is that
0: because of management practice?
2: The the assumption is your management practice on the surface has resulted in what is now sitting in the soil down to a meter. I don't think there's much point in going below a meter. But certainly, there's a lot of enthusiasm going, going below 30 centimetres. So, you know, while we know that the majority of carbon, say, in southern Australia, majority of soil carbon, you'd say 95% exists in the top 10 centimetres. But when you multiply by the massive volume down to a
0: metre, even a small amount of carbon multiplies up to a big number. So a question, and you mentioned the Northern Territory before, with Native Tidal Act and other I guess acts that exist talk about extraction of resources. Do many of them cover about the input of resources back in, such as carbon?
2: No, it's still being contested, as far as I understand, where it's never really been tested. So, if it's a human induced regeneration or it's a soil carbon project, which is an attribute of the land, that's what's still contested. If it's just savannah burning, well, if you did it this year and you didn't do it that next year, there's no carryover effect. So it's not an attribute of the land that has contested. It was the management on the land. So less contestable than something that has a 25-year residual commitment. That's what yet to be tested as far as I understand.
0: Okay. And one other question before I throw it over to Sam. What are some of the opportunities for arid communities who are still looking to make money, financial gains in the short term with some of these carbon projects?
2: So definitely in the arid areas, human-induced regeneration is one possibility. It is a slow process, but it does occur. Where things went wrong previously was farmers getting credited for not doing anything. So I think we need to make sure that people understand that there is something you have to demonstrate you have done that is different to what you would have done as business as usual. Like you have fenced the goats out of a particular area and you you have changed your grazing management practices in that area. So. Something that you've done to induce those trees to grow better than they would have. The other one is savannah burning. If you're in that 600 millimetre plus zone in northern Australia, you could be eligible. And the other one, obvious, if you're a livestock producer and you've got earlier finishing of beef cattle, those are probably the most applicable to arid zone, but you'd probably argue a lot of them are biased towards the
0: north. Thanks for that. I think, yeah, those questions, only a, a couple that we picked from the audience, but it is a space which people are definitely very interested in. I'm sure as we start to flesh out this episode and the next one, there'll be even more questions. But for now, esteemed co-host, Sam, hello, over to you.
1: <laughs> hello, Richard. So just to give our listeners a bit of an overview, can you share a little bit about where each sector in agriculture is at in terms of its footprint and Reduction actions, you know, are there any standout industries that are leading the way or dragging behind?
2: Yeah, look, you know, you've got the extremes. You've got the red meat industry that have got a fairly large footprint. They know they've got a big footprint. They know that methane is a real critical issue for them. They've set the carbon neutral 2030 target. They've poured a lot of money into that. You know, I think it's sort of 200 million plus is going into solving addressing those issues. So. There's an industry that's being proactive on the front foot. They know there's an issue. They've got to deal with it, and they're putting the time and effort in. You could go to other industries that are far less emitting. So, you know, think of viticulture. 98% of the emissions from a bottle of wine come beyond the vineyard. They don't come from the field. It's the bottling process, the washing of the glass, the manufacturing of the glass. So... Actually, technically, if you go into renewable energy as a viticulture system, you, are, you only have 2% of emissions left to care about. So a few trees will sort that out. So we're seeing the wine industry take a lot of interest in this because their ability to achieve carbon neutrality is quite close. Almonds, for example, wouldn't have a lot of emissions from the plantation. They were claiming sequestration in the trees until we worked out that every 25 years they mulch the trees and put it back in the soil that kind of destroyed all their sequestration. So, you know, I said to them, well, if you find another purpose for the trees, like putting into guitars or something, you could take that carbon out of the environment and claim carbon neutrality. So it's quite variable. We're having a lot of engagement with industries like rice and cotton that are interested in what is our footprint, what can we do about it? And, um, yeah, so that, that probably gives you a spectrum. Perennial horticulture, probably not a large emission at all. So very easy to get there. So we're talking about, you know, a stone fruit, pom fruit, oranges, almonds, viticulture. But if you look at annual horticulture, they use a lot of nitrogen. You know, lettuce can use hundreds of kilos of nitrogen because they're probably growing it on the wrong soils. So there's room to move there. Does that give you a bit of a snapshot?
1: Yeah, that's good. We've got a bit of flavour of everything and, yeah, good to hear more about livestock industry and their commitments. And I think Oli, which leads into the next area we're going to discuss about scope one, two, and three.
0: Yeah. Well, and I've just got a question just on something you said before, Rich. So you said if an almond plantation doesn't mulch the trees back so that carbon which has been stored in the trees remains on that property, they can, by actually extracting it and taking it into other products, it can be carbon neutral. How does that work?
2: Yeah, so look, it's a little controversial at the moment, and it's something that I think is coming through in international development. So right now, if you harvest and replant and put the timber into construction, in theory, you claim that, say, half of the tree ended up in a building frame that is not going anywhere for 100 years, or in in furniture or someone's valuable guitar. Right now, under the old Kyoto regulation, the moment you cut a tree down, it's considered to be an emission. Now, everybody knows that's not true. It depends on what you do with the tree. But the problem is tracking that was considered too difficult at the time, tracking what went into pulp and paper, what went into landfill, what went into available guitars. So the easy answer was it's an emission, which is not true. But there is a challenge to it at the moment. I would say watch this space because currently if the almond industry did that, they could probably sell it down the supply chain but it wouldn't comply with the science-based targets initiative. It wouldn't comply with the greenhouse gas protocol or the Australian inventory under current policy. This is a very active area that I think common sense is going to start coming through and saying, well,
0: actually, no, that is a
2: valid sequestration if you didn't burn the tree or mulch it.
0: And so it can be counted. God, you're opening a can of worms there, throwing the word common sense and policy in the same banner there, Rich. But um...
2: No, you see, the common sense will come in through industry pushback. That's where we haven't had the common sense. It's easy for policy people to say if the trees cut down, it's too hard to figure out where it went, so we'll just go with a lose-lose situation. What we're saying is now that it becomes material to the almond industry or to the livestock industries,
0: it will become an issue because of pushback. So let's go now to that supply chain piece. Can you explain what is scope one, two and three emissions and how does it all work?
2: Scope one is direct emissions that happen on your farm as a result of your farming operation. So that would be methane from cows, nitrous oxide from fertiliser that you put on. If you put on agricultural lime that was dug out of a fossil fuel source and it puts on the soil and the carbonates go off, it's CO2 that came out of fossil sources. That's scope one, direct emissions. Scope two are emissions that occur as a result of an activity on your farm, but the emission occurred at the power station. So if you draw electricity out of the grid, the emission didn't occur on your farm. It occurred down at the power station, but it occurred because you used power on your farm and you could choose to use solar energy rather than grid energy. That's scope two. So the best example is electricity out of the grid. Scope three, this is the one that's a little, little tricky. It's what happened before your farm and after your farm as a result of producing what you produce. So... To manufacture urea fertilizer to put it onto your farm to grow your crop, urea requires a lot of natural gas energy to fire the Bosch process. And so there's a massive greenhouse gas footprint in manufacturing the urea you bring onto your farm. One day, we hope that you could phone up your supplier, your fertilizer company, and say, can you supply me with urea manufactured with green hydrogen? That's possible. It's busy being researched at the moment. So we include it so that you have the conversation with your supplier to say, Can you supply me with uh, Roundup, that glyphosate that is not expensive on fossil fuels? And your supplier will say, well, currently you can't do it, but in a year's time we can do it and it'll cost you 10 cents more. So it's that. And it's the same with livestock. If you're a livestock trader and you buy from a source that is not carbon neutral, well, you're bringing those livestock in. Someone has to account for the methane in those livestock before they arrived on your farm. And so we say, well, you'll have to account for it. And next time you'll phone up and say, can you do live carbon neutral? Else I'll go to your neighbor who can. So that's what the scope three is. Scope threes, I would say, by definition, will solve themselves over the next decade. Because you'll start having a conversation with upstream and downstream suppliers to minimize your exposure. They'll be put under pressure to deliver
0: carbon neutral product. And then everybody gets there. And so I think like the scope one piece seems quite straightforward in terms of how a farmer could offset that. And I think the examples of that are probably there. But are there examples of how farmers are collaborating with others for scope two and scope three emissions?
2: Scope two is an interesting one in that I've got some mates who don't really agree with greenhouse gas emissions, but it was cheaper to put solar panels and batteries on the sharing shed than to draw three phase electricity out of the grid. You know, so 20 grand to put solar panels to put in a new sharing shed, uh, whereas it could have cost you 100 grand to bring it from the road. It's actually so scope two can self solve through just renewable energy on farm. Scope three is just is your buying decisions. Over time, you will say, well, there's a new technology that allows me to use surplus solar energy on farm to passively generate ammonia that can displace my need for fertilizer. That's already happening. There are farms out there that are already using passive solar from unused solar energy. Because you think about a lot of solar is used for for pumping, for example, but that's only about 50% of the time the solar is actually used for pumping. The rest of the time is sitting idle. And the technologies now, there's at least two companies offering to use that unused passive solar to use electrolysis to make urea, make fertilizer. So that's what's going to emerge. And that's how you solve those scope threes over time. Glyphosate will be made with green hydrogen, or the farm you buy from, everybody's going carbon neutral. And you can say, Well, I won't buy from you, I'll buy from your neighbor because I know they can supply carbon neutral beef, or at least they have taken care of their accounting. So I think the scope threes present a challenge around more negotiation and discussion with buyers and sellers. And over time, they will reduce themselves, which leaves us with the scope ones being the issue within the farmer's. Real control or challenge. But how do you ensure there isn't double accounting? I think it'll become like the GST, where you know it's only the end of the chain that ends up paying it. Because if you think about that cascade you've just given, if you farmer number one, you're doing a scope one, two, three audit, and you then say, Well, I have offset my emissions by planting trees and I fed seaweed, and so therefore my emissions are 50% lower. You've now deducted that by 50%, and that's the number you pass on to the second farmer who buys your steers who only put the value into their calculator. So already it hasn't cascaded. There's no double counting. And so you become a preferential seller to the second farmer because you're half the emissions liability of the other guy. But farmer number one has sold their liability down the supply chain. So they've sold. It's only farmer two that actually sells to the supply chain that then markets a 50% lower product. So, you see, we're not accounting for a national inventory here. We're accounting for a supply chain. And so, farmer number one's accounting is only considered by farmer number two. It's not added to farmer number two. So, we're not accumulating the results. It's only in the hands of the final buyer that needs to market that product down the supply chain. We're not accumulating down the supply chain. That's why I said it's a bit like the GSE. It gets passed down the supply chain, not accumulated down the supply chain because this is not a process that adds up to a national account, they're not additive. So, depending on what, who your market is, if your market is one of the international companies that has set a target, they are going to be buying on emissions intensity. Because if they buy a kilogram from you that is full emissions and a kilogram from a neighbor that's half, your neighbor's preferential because that's half the carbon credits they need to now buy to achieve their target. We're already seeing the major cities doing that buying on emissions intensity because that's the only metric they've got to compare you with 30,000 use to your neighbor who's got 10,000. You've got three times the emissions, but you might have half the emissions intensity so they can buy from you on that metric. This is where the world gets tricky because emissions intensity is the only metric the supply chain have to buy from. So the supply chain that have set targets like the OLMs, the Cargill's, the JBSs, the Fonteras, they've all used emissions intensity as the only way they can buy low emissions towards a target that is based on the product they're selling. But subnational and national governments and industries are setting absolute targets from another direction that the whole red meat industry will be carbon neutral by 2030. That's an absolute top-down target, not an individual farm target. So we've got this two-dimensional push on us. One National governments, the Paris Climate Agreement, the Global Methane Pledge, all requiring absolute reductions at the same time as the supply chain are asking for emissions intensity, which is the only metric they can buy on because of differences in farm size. And some people are saying, well, these are two different directions. They're not really, if you think about it, because zero is zero whichever way you look at it. So eventually, zero emissions intensity becomes zero absolute.
0: We can come back to that supply chain piece because I think what you're saying there, Rich, is so. Yeah, there's the I'll say the consumer, the market being driven by the supply chain, but then also the government that is setting the targets and standards. So I guess where we sit today, what's the bigger driver and influence of where we're at and setting those targets of one, two, three emissions and how we progress through each one?
2: Yes. Yeah, so look, it's quite important to understand that no one's asking anyone to be low carbon tomorrow. Unless you've got a specific carbon neutral buyer that wants to differentiate carbon neutral wool jackets out of Italy or something, no one's asking for it. But by 2030, the supply chain targets do start kicking in. So we know that by 2030, Unilever wants 30% less, JBS wants 30% less. So they're setting these targets to start. Important to remember they only start in 2030 and then head towards neutral by 2050. So No one, by 2030, nobody's got to be carbon neutral. That's not realistic even. So the idea that we all carbon neutral by 2030 is not correct.
0: It's only the start
2: of the journey towards a 2050 world that is carbon
0: neutral. So except for the Australian red meat industry because of the 2030 carbon neutral target by meat and livestock Australia.
2: Yeah. So remember the carbon neutral 2030 target is not an individual target at an individual farm. They are not asking each farmer to be carbon neutral. By definition, by hoping they will be, but realistically, there's no one farm that they will be targeting to be carbon neutral. It's a whole of industry strategy saying we will attempt to balance all the extra trees in the landscape against all the cattle we have in the landscape across the whole industry. So it also doesn't mean that any one farm has to be carbon neutral. So I guess where where I'm headed is the thing that will probably arrive on the farmer's door first is going to be the 2030 supply chain target saying, does your supply chain want lower emissions, and how are you going to supply that to the farm? If you live export to Indonesia out of northern Australia, well, that might not come for the next decade. If you're supplying through a differentiated market through Cargill, Olam, who have set the target, well, by 2030, they'll be pushing the pressure on. That will probably come first. Things like national policy. We don't see a lot of that coming through. In fact, the minister said when they signed the 30% global methane pledge that they would not be putting a tax on farmers. I think we still remain in the incentive-based mechanism in Australia, whereas it's very different in New Zealand.
1: Richard, whether you're chasing a premium, a farmer, or, you know, trying to make the first steps to align with industry goals, what would you say are the first steps for a farmer? Who wants to baseline their farm and get started? What does this sort of normally cost? And what would be your recommendations on how to get started? Look,
2: the first thing is to do carbon, a basic carbon audit. You need to know what your number is. Is the number high or low? How is your number? And I would say you would get an absolute emissions number out of some of the online tools that are available. And you can then Divide that number by the total live weight sold to get your emissions intensity or take it on an area basis to get the total emissions for the red meat industry, for example. That's number one. Number two is then to say, well, what can we do about that number? Because how does that number compare to what Coles are buying or what JBS is buying? Am I at the top of the range or the bottom of the range? And these are just straight efficiency questions. They're not about mitigation greenhouse gas emissions. Because emissions intensity is a very useful indicator of how efficient are you at converting inputs to outputs. It's just another way of doing that. And so what that means is the first tranche of things you do are just straight out of the best practice manual. It's, can I get my fertility up? Can I get my weaning rates up? Can I get mortality down? Can I get herd health? Can I put better pastures in, uh, better legumes into the landscape? Those are the things that are no regrets and are the reason why emissions intensity are lower on some farms than others. Generally, what you'll find is the farmer that has the lowest emission intensity has the highest reproduction rate, the greatest number of progeny that are going through to market or going through to productive status. Then there comes a point in the future where that's all you can do on emissions intensity. So you got your emissions intensity from 10 down to 6. After that, we wait for technologies like the
0: vaccine or a uh, methane inhibitor to drop that number further. And, Rich, you mentioned online tools. Obviously, this series is sponsored by Ruminati, but your work with the greenhouse accounting frameworks, can you tell me what was your role with that and how does that work? And has that been superseded now or is it still relevant?
2: You know, this started more than about 18 years ago where investors first wanted to know where to put the cash. Like, this is a problem where we're going to put the cash, and there were lots of lobbying, self-interested parties. So we just developed a farm-level greenhouse account tool that could tell you what the pie chart looked like and where the big ticket item was. There were lots of people lobbying to put money into effluent management on farm, and we found out, well, that's less than 10% of the picture, and 90% of the picture is methane. So if you're putting money into 10% of the picture, there's no point if you ignore the 90%. So that's where they started but then industry became interested in them but my role very quickly shifted to how do we do the accounting with integrity that aligns with the science-based target initiatives the greenhouse gas protocol the iso standards and also align with the national greenhouse gas inventory so my role shifted to more here's an excel spreadsheet that shows industry how to do the accounting my job has moved away from hosting tools it's well we do still but they are only tools to show everyone else how to do the account it's now up to industry to actually pick that up and say what are we going to do to make that tangible and applicable and available to farmers and that's the transition we're in at the moment
1: richard speaking about tangible you know ways in which farmers can lower their carbon footprint can you explain say how a farmer can participate in a carbon project and And what are some examples available to farmers, you know, from permanent plantings to soil carbon sequestration, livestock systems? Can you give us a bit of a taste of what's out there?
2: Yeah, there's a range of projects available, and you could divide them into forestry projects, which is all about carbon storage. You could then have other soil carbon storage projects, and you can have emissions avoidance projects. I'll break them down. So, your carbon sequestration in trees is basically methodologies like You've got remnant trees and you've done something like fence them off from goats and therefore they grow better. You can do a plantation methodology where you actually plant trees and you get credited for the amount of residual carbon in those trees. So those are projects where you have to demonstrate that you're doing something new out of the ordinary, something that you weren't doing before, deliberately to store more carbon in the trees on your farm or to plant new trees on your farm. You can get sequestration out of that. Those are usually at least 25-year commitments that you make and you get paid on a schedule. Soil carbon, quite similar, except you're doing land management changes that hopefully will improve the carbon sequestration under your crop or pasture. So that might be change grazing management, that might be moving out of cropping into permanent pasture, those types of activities. I would say there's a vast difference between those in terms of their risk than emissions avoidance because emissions avoidance says one of the methodologies is we've got livestock we'll send it to market three months earlier because we've grown them better that's the herd methodology that's fairly secure you don't have to spend 25 years proving it didn't happen you didn't send them to market later you sent them to market earlier and that's all done there's no hangover commitment there's no residual commitment to that you just didn't produce that methane same as the dietary supplement method you fed them on like an oil seed and they didn't produce as much methane as they did before. Very simple. The piggery methodology or the dairy effluent methodology, you covered the effluent system, you generated methane, sold that as renewable energy, you didn't produce as much methane as you did yesterday. Savannah burning is another one. Savannah burning says we'll change from burning a lot of dry matter in the middle of summer with a hot fire that generates lots of methane to burning in the cool season, a cooler fire generates less methane. It's nothing to do with carbon it's all to do with methane so all those are emissions avoidance projects and why they are significantly less risk is you either did or didn't produce the methane or nitrous oxide and it's no residual commitment after that you can sell that almost with impunity up until 2030 when the supply chain says you need to keep that for yourself that credit so that you can show you low emission don't sell it anymore if it's a sequestration commitment you've made a 25 year commitment to deliver that attribute which now sits in your soil or sits on your land and you will pass that down to the next generation as an obligation but bushfires and droughts can destroy the asset and so the investment sector are looking at that very differently with a different risk profile saying well why would we invest in that when about 85 percent of soil carbon change year on year in australia is to do with rainfall not management so hang on, you know, if it's all rainfall and we've been through three La Nina years and we're going into an El Nina, well, surely what we gained in the last three years could barrel out in the next three years because of dry weather. So the banks are starting to see that very differently from emissions avoidance, which is very low risk and the other being very high risk. The other difference, of course, is when you get to 2030, if you're selling emissions avoidance, you can just stop selling it and keep it as your low emissions access to your supply chain. If you've got soil carbon or tree carbon, it's a physical bank account that you can imagine a storage bank. The more you've sold out of that, the less you have to table against your own obligation when the supply chain wants it against your carbon balance. So there's a huge risk to the future of viability of your low carbon status by selling out of a finite resource. And I think that is not well understood out there, that difference in risk between the two. Risk to the investor, risk to the bank, risk to the property owner.
0: Rich, I was going to say it's probably not a bad spot to wrap this episode up. I think as we go from here, from I guess what's happening within the the farm gate, as we move from the supply chain to here, it's actually, well, then I think the next episode is focusing on all the solutions that are out there and where to from here, because this really is just a come this is just the beginning of the conversation here for our community, and I feel like we're learning so much as we step through, and it's just this spider web that just keeps expanding out.
2: (laughs) It is a bit of a spider web. The most classic statement was Fiona Conroy at the ABS conference who said very famously, on my deathbed will I sell soil carbon. She's a producer from the Berlin Peninsula and I think she understands
0: the risk. So we've started at a global macro view and now we're starting to understand a little bit more about the different types of emissions and the different classes that exist between scope one, two and three. And I know for me I'm developing albeit slowly, a greater understanding of how it all works. It's definitely a complicated area, but please hit us up with any questions that you've got. I think, Sam, what sticks out to me is this access to markets piece that exists in here and going to be really interesting to watch of what is the international community actually expecting around different products, but also here in Australia, what is the consumer and the other markets expecting when it comes to carbon? And I think what is specifically really interesting about that is that 2030 becomes a pretty pivotal year for what happens from then onwards
1: definitely we're going to see a, a shift in uh, movement and things speeding up as time goes on so tune in tomorrow to get the low down as we sit down with bobby miller co-founder of ruminati to find more about their emissions calculation tool and how you can get access to it